Hello again, everybody. I'm Kevin Michalowski, editor of Concealed Carry Magazine, and this is your member-only content. We are back again with noted criminal defense attorney and former state prosecutor, Tom Grieve. Um, and this is our Ask an Attorney segment. And as I always like to point out, I am not an attorney. So um, anything that I say, we'll be bouncing that off, Tom. Um, but uh, Based on the entire uh, coronavirus, COVID-19 lockdown operation, uh, we, we've got to change things up a little bit. You can see I am in the uh, USCCA secret broadcast cave and uh, low light training center. Um, and uh, Tom is uh, broadcasting um, from a, a, a well-appointed office, it appears to me. back. You, you, you must be doing pretty good, Tom. Is, is that I'm real uh, or mahogany? You get that right from the rainforest or what? Yeah, you know, and uh, you know, I've I've got a couple books back there. You know, I don't know if uh -huh. you can see those for for feet, you know, in in shot. And uh, mm -hmm. I've got a light bulb just dangling from the ceiling in my office, just over there. You know, it's uh, it's it's a beautiful thing for interrogations, right? That's the uh, the light bulb operation. Strictly speaking, yes. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. We call those, you know, official statements, not interrogations anymore. So, folks, uh, we don't really have access to uh, a lot of uh, live questions for you today with the Ask an Attorney um, operation going on. But we have pulled together some uh, very important information. And we're talking about um, the ways that you can lose your Second Amendment rights. And uh, this is a, um, a, a very important topic because some of the stuff that we do as responsibly armed Americans, as concealed carriers, as people who want to defend ourselves, could land us in some trouble. And uh, if you don't do things correctly when you're defending yourself with your firearm, you could lose your right to own, possess, carry, you know, whatever later on in life as an end result of that. So uh, talking about uh, how you can lose your firearms rights. Let's jump in right with the very first big one there, Tom, is, is um, and, and I won't say committing a felony, let's say being convicted of a felony. Um, tell us a little bit about how that happens and, and, and then what happens to your firearms rights if you are suddenly finding yourself, you know, the gavel drops and you are now a felon. Gotcha. So before we before we dive into this and a lot of the other very meaty topics today, I just kind of want to do my, my attorney fine print uh, dis, you know, disclaimers and qualifiers, because this is, for those of you who are regular viewers, you know that I routinely do this, but this is particularly important in this one. And that's because we're going to be using some terminology today in order to make it relatable, in order to not use three sentences when we can just use two words. But you have to understand that as a result of doing that, that we are uh, leaving a lot of room for exceptions on things. So as an example, we always talk about felony convictions, but the actual statutes in play when we're talking about the federal level, generally refer to being convicted of a crime punishable by greater than one year of imprisonment, which generally people call a felony, but you got to understand that those are two different ways of saying slightly the same thing, but those Venn diagrams do not have a 100% overlap. So number one, understand that we're going to be using uh, relatable terms, easy terms, short terms, but terms that there's always going to be exceptions to. Uh, and then we're going to be casting as wide a net as possible to make this as relatable to as many people as possible. But you got to understand as well, and now you probably know what I'm going to say, check your local listings because laws certainly vary from time and place. And there's going to be exceptions. Uh, California is, is one state with a whole host of exceptions on uh, different ways that you can lose your firearm rights or have them taken away for periods of up to 10 years on things that 
do not apply here in Wisconsin, where I'm a licensed Wisconsin attorney. So I'm not going to be going into, into extraordinary depth uh, as, as, as often as possible to try to make this as relatable as possible, but um, extremely important qualifier for today. So with that in mind, let's actually talk about the question that Kevin asked. I, I feel like such an attorney, you know, uh, filling two minutes of airtime without even, you know, answering anything. Uh, but so for felons, am I getting so billed for that two minutes? No. <laughs> it, you're always getting billed. Don't worry about that. Yeah, yeah it's, okay. it's, right. it's 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 it gets emailed right over. Yeah. So. Um, <laughs> So there's a federal statute here, and a lot of what we're going to be talking about, you can find at 18 U.S.C. 922 sub G. Okay, so if you just type that into your browser, don't do it now while you're watching, but it would be 18 U.S.C. 922 sub G. And anytime we say sub, that's a very fancy way of saying simply parentheses. So parentheses G. That's going to be where we find a lot of the federal firearm prohibitions. We're not going to be reviewing all of them today. There's frankly too much to get through, and I'm not here to editorialize or to defend the status of the laws. We are here to make sure that you are trained and educated on what they are so you can make the best and wisest decisions for not only you, but also your family and your future. When we're talking about felony convictions, we're again, we're technically talking about crimes that are punishable by greater than one year of imprisonment, which there are some certain weird misdemeanors that are out there that can do that. And we're not even talking about all felonies. There can be some odd exceptions when it comes to uh, certain types of, uh, of obscure anti-open trade laws and, and things like that on the federal level. But as a 99.999% sort of thing, we're talking about all felonies, all right? I remember when I started out in the district attorney's office and there was myself and there were, um, I started out as an intern before I became a full-fledged prosecutor back when I had a, a student practice license at the end of law school. And I remember both myself and three of the other interns that I started with um, were very impressed by one thing after, you know, three or four months in. And we said, you know, it can be pretty hard to get convicted of a felony. And that's because we saw people committing felonies all the time when we were in court uh, that at least the attitude back then was, you know what, we're going to try to not to manufacture felons, so to speak. Uh, if, you've, if you're somebody with a clean record, we're not talking about the crime of the, cent of the century or anything like that. Uh, you know, we're, we're going to try to step this down. Um, that is not necessarily the case everywhere. And I would say that particularly where I am in Wisconsin, that those attitudes are, have definitely changed to a wide degree. Um, but just the same, it's not necessarily the easiest thing to be convicted of a felony, though it is easy sometimes to commit a felony. You know, uh, There's, I think, a, a book out there called A Crime a Day or something like that that talks about all the different federal felonies that you know, <laughs> we all commit every day without even knowing it. So what we're really focused on here are convictions, not 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 uh, you know committing offenses, and that can be a tricky thing. But there are different attitudes in different parts of this country, and even within different states, different counties, and different prosecutors will have different agendas. Whether it's political, whether it's not political, you name it, where they may be more or less willing to try to hammer somebody for a felony conviction. So I'm not saying call up your local sheriff's department or your local district attorney's office and say hey, what, what do you guys really want to nail people on? Um, that's probably not the way I would go about that. But just understand that, look, if you go out there, uh, and this is typically aimed at, at folks, you know, under the age of 25, um, who, uh, you know, if they go out there with some friends and decide that, you know, there's some liquor in that cabin, 
and I'd really like to get that, and no one's home. Well, let's we'll just, you know, we pop a window and go and grab some uh, some vodka. I mean, that's not re- that's a felony. At least that's a felony in Wisconsin, and I imagine many other states. And that's that's a very easy thing to uh, to fall into. Yeah, absolutely, and and it's it's those sorts of things that we're trying to remind people um, that got to pay very close attention to some of the stuff that they're doing. You know, I have a, I have a several mantras that I live by, but one of them that I've uh, enforced on, on my kids as well. And I tell people all the time, you know, don't break two laws at once. You know, if, uh, if you're, uh, um, that's, that's usually when things go bad, you know, and, and for me that uh, it applies like on traffic stops, you know, somebody's speeding, uh, slow down, go away. Oh, you're speeding and I get up to the car window and now, well, now you're revoked or now you're drunk or now you've got drugs in the car. Well, you've broken two laws at once. I got to at least pick one of these that, you know, take some law enforcement action on. So, uh, you know, that that's a prime example that you've given, Tom, that somebody, you know, a young person can do something stupid. I mean, and, and it's very simply stupid. It was, you know, suddenly now they're, they're a, a convicted burglar or, you know, um, uh, felonious breaking and entering or whatever it is that they're going to get charged with. And that can have a tremendous impact on the rest of your life. You know, the uh, um, people will mock, you know, the, the teacher that's going on your permanent record. Well, yeah, this, this is actually a, there, there is a permanent record out there, folks. And uh, you want to keep that clean because, um, depending on where you are, you're going to be in a whole lot of trouble and, and you're going to lose a lot of your rights, maybe even your voting rights as well. So, And something just to add, you know, for your parents and your grandparents out there. So I had a case some years ago now where um, some some kid was, I think, 15 or 16, and he and his buddies uh, went garage shopping, which is to say they didn't open any doors, but they literally just walked around a couple neighborhoods near where they were, popping in and out of open garages, taking a look for for beer cans. Uh, for, for, for them to have. And uh, they found it and they decided to bury it in, in one of their backyards. Don't ask me why, right? But that's what they did. And evidently there were a couple people who saw these three or four kids going into these different garages. They didn't break anything. They never opened any doors. They were just walking in and out of open garage doors, which is, by the way, another reason not to leave your garage door open. Um, so, you know, so the police arrive, they actually catch him in the act of, of burying, I think it was a Bud Light six pack and a couple Zimas, uh, something like that. So quite the haul. And, uh, and they asked the parents and they said, well, what do you want us to do? And, you know, the parents who uh, were none too impressed with their you know teenage son for doing this. And they said, well, would he be charged as a juvenile? And he said, yeah, it's all juvenile. And they said, great teach him a lesson, you know, hammer him. Uh, they didn't realize what they were doing by that. Uh, he wound mm-hmm. up, believe it or not. Now this was, this was a, a different time and place. This was some probably 10, 15 years back or so. Uh, but he wound up serving 30 days juvie and, uh, he was arrested for every single garage that he entered, which was something like 23 or 24 garages is what he admitted that, you know, he sat in the back of the squad car and he pointed out to to the cops. Yep. I went into that house. I went to that house and that house. So he had this juvenile adjudication as we call it on his record, uh, for, he went down on a couple burglaries and you know, Hey, it's juvenile, right? That, That doesn't apply to you at all. It doesn't follow you anywhere. Uh, wrong. I, I don't want to go into too many details, but uh, this young uh, teenager became a, uh, a very successful 
um, in the healthcare field, a very successful individual, and found out that, boy, he was actually having a lot of problems because all of a sudden, you know, he's graduating with his fancy degree from his fancy university and all this other kind of stuff. Yeah. Hardcore employers, they know how to get around a lot of these laws. Uh, so they were able to basically figure out, look, you were arrested and charged for 24 burglaries. This doesn't look good. Uh, you know, boy, you, you looks like you had these juvenile adjudications. Folks, what happens as a delinquent, this will stay on your record and intelligent people and intelligent corporations and so forth, they know how to access it. And again, I'm not saying that that's right or fair. Uh, I'm not saying don't discipline your kids. I'm really saying the opposite. But what I am saying is the fact that things don't always work the way that you think they work. And everybody was very sorry that they handled it in that particular way. But that was an example of something that seemed, I'm not going to say harmless, but certainly it's not your traditional breaking and entering when you think of guys with ski masks going into the crowbar and a, and a knife or something like that. Uh, but that's the way it was written up because that's the way that the laws describe that. So to anybody who pulled his record or to access uh, to, to pull his record, that's what it looked like he did. That's what it looked like he was convicted of. And that caused significant career and social damage uh, long after they thought it was it was dealt with. Mm -hmm. And and Tom, that actually actually uh, leads me into to saying, um, you know, don't don't talk to the police without your attorney present. Don't be making decisions about what you or your family members or children or whatever may be charged with without getting advice of an attorney. Because honestly, the law is complicated, folks, and um, that's that's why we pay attorneys to study all of that stuff. And you need to talk to an attorney while you're talking to the police. So. All right, let's move on to the uh, the next big topic here, and this is one that that will probably inflame the phone lines and and get everybody's ire up is uh, um, red flag laws. So we've heard all about them, you know that these uh, the this is an opportunity for people to you know um, call the authorities and say that they're afraid of you, and then the cops come and take your guns. Is that is that basically it, Tom? I mean, basically, kind of, yeah. Uh, it's it's a unilateral court action. In other words, if there's certain requisite levels of probable cause or whatever it might be set up as in different states, but basically somebody initiates a complaint, law enforcement uh, presumably takes a couple statements, they do whatever qualifies as an investigation relative to the particular laws in play. They file it with whoever the relevant authority is, whether that's the district attorney's office, something called the corporation council, whoever's the relevant authority here. Basically, the, the government attorneys is another fancy way of saying this. Uh, and then a judge takes a look at it. You don't even know what's going on. You don't even know somebody called in a complaint on you. You may not have the right to be there. You may not have the right to push back, to present your own evidence. This is all happening behind the curtains. You're not even told is, is my understanding of how this works in, frankly, every place I've ever heard of how this works. So there might be an exception, but if there is, I'm unaware of it. Uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, the police show up at your door with a warrant, they seize your firearms, and now you're on some sort of prohibited possessor list for Lord knows how long. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it can be up to a couple of years in some of these different states and different places like that. And again, uh, I think part of the part of the problem, there's so many problems that I see with, with the red flag laws as they're written and as they're being enforced in places. Um, part of the laws is, is that you don't know this is happening and you don't get the opportunity, like you said, to face your accuser, to to you know bring in any evidence that will rebut what people are claiming against you. Um, this is 
for lack of a better term, in my eyes, a secret tribunal. And, and they end up showing up with a warrant that says, you know, they knock on the door and here we go. Um, hi, John Smith, we're coming to take your guns. And, uh, you know, we've had at least one case, it was in Maryland, I believe, where the guy said, nope, not happening here. And uh, it, it resulted in gunfire in the homeowner. The gun owner was killed, um, just refusing to give up his guns on a, on a, a red flag complaint. And those sorts of things, absolutely the kind of stuff we do not want to see happen to good law-abiding citizens. Uh, Tom, what can people do? Um, is there defense against this? I mean, once they come and take your guns, or, or, or what should they do when, when police show up at the door with a warrant and they're going to come take your guns? Well, before the police show up at your door, the best thing that you need to do is you need to get involved politically with local assemblymen, with local senators, you name it. The, the, best def the best defense is offense, and you need to play offense against these bills wherever they are introduced. Um, that's number one. Number two is keep in mind that even if something turns out to be unlawful, so if law enforcement shows up, they've got this warrant, and they say, we're going to search your house, or if they're making an arrest, even if the arrest is later determined in court or if the warrant is later determined in court to be illegal, it is still also illegal for you to physically resist that process. Again, not defending the laws here, but that's the way it is. So in other words, if somebody arrests you, if, if, uh, if law enforcement is doing, uh, is doing an arrest on you for whatever reason, let's say it's a drunk driving, okay? Um, and uh, you, know, you, you weren't impaired, they think you're on some sort of medication that you're not on, and your blood test later vindicates that fact. Um, but if you physically resist that arrest, you may be able to, in, in many states, uh, to be lawfully convicted of the resisting obstructing an officer, even though there was no valid arrest to be made at the time. So my general blanket advice to people, and again, focusing here as a Wisconsin attorney in Wisconsin, but my general blanket advice to folks here in Wisconsin, at least, is look, even if you think there's something that's illegal that's going on, that's all the more reason for you to, to raise your rights, to not say anything, be polite, be calm, be respectful, but make it clear that you're not consenting to searches, you're not consenting to this, you're not consenting to that. Uh, you need to be able to raise your rights, but you're only going to make it worse for yourself if you resist, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that's that's what I tell people all the time, too. If, there's, if they believe there's a problem with law enforcement action that's happening out on the street or in your front yard or on the side of the road, wherever this is happening, is not the place to take that up. Um, if there is truly a problem, if there's if there's truly uh, something that that shouldn't be happening, there are a whole raft of attorneys out there waiting to file suit against you know municipalities, against the city, against the county, against the agencies who are making this unlawful arrest or or filing this unlawful warrant. Uh, warrant, yeah, it is truly a gigantic pain in the butt, um, and it's not fair and it's not right and. And it just seems to be getting worse and worse all the time. And now you have to take time to go back and fight this. But folks, um, if, if the police show up with a warrant and they're coming to either search something or take something or, or whatever, um, it, it, it's not the time to have that gunfight and to, you know, to make your, your famous last stand or anything like that um, just to show that you don't support these laws or that you believe them to be unjust or unfair. Um, there... Yes, you should have to get in. You you shouldn't have to pay for the attorney to do this. But um, I don't know. Do you get to file a countersuit against the county and have them pay your legal expenses, um, Tom? If if something like that happens, if you need to go to court to get your guns back, how does that work? 
So obviously that's a very, very hyper state specific question, but let me just mm -hmm. kind of frame it like this. Who do you think makes the laws and how you can sue the government? Oh yeah. The government. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, as a general rule, the government does not make it easy to sue the government. Uh, mm -hmm. I, there's only a small handful of attorneys here in Wisconsin that I'm aware of uh, who are uh, actively open to the idea of, sure, I'll take a lawsuit, a plaintiff's case against the state of Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the anecdotal advice that they've given me is they don't want referrals. They don't want me to pass out their name or number or anything, unless frankly, you've mm -hmm. got some sort of limb that's been taken off or a body in the ground because there's, mm -hmm. they make it, the, at least here in Wisconsin, what I've been told is that there's strict caps. They make it very, very difficult. It's uphill sledding to say the least. And the result is, is that unless you got big things to go after, it's it's difficult. Now I know that there's some exceptions that you can often take things federal, and that that that's a way of of stepping around a lot of those kind of issues. Um, honestly, it, that's that's way above my pay grade, Kevin. So, mm -hmm. um, but yeah. just be aware, generally speaking, of 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 two things. Number one is the fact that. Um, there are often time limits of being able to file a civil plaintiff suit against, well, anybody, let alone the government. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those those statute limitations to file what may be called a notice of claims or whatever it might be, uh, can be days, not, not weeks, not months, not years, days. So mm -hmm. if this is something that you think is out there, don't sit on it because you lose options extraordinarily quickly sometimes. That's number one. Number two is the fact that uh, I always ask clients generally, well, look, uh, and, and I, this is kind of my blanket advice to people kind of going back to the, well, do you, do you resist them when they're at the door? Do you want to win or do you want to be a martyr? All right. Because if you mm -hmm. want to be a martyr, then sure, resist them. And you're going to get convicted of something, maybe a lot, maybe a little. And believe me, your resisting does not help us, by the way, on the other charges. Just rest assured of that. Okay. Um, if you want to win... The right way of doing that is to do what we talked about, to be polite, to be respectful, to reserve your rights, to not consent to any searches. And we will have an opportunity to go through everything with a fine tooth comb down the line, probably months, maybe even years later, okay? Depending upon how the process of courts play out and so forth. But if you wanna win, that's my advice on how to win. If you wanna be a martyr, then sure, there's other options. And to be clear, I'm not legally recommending or endorsing or sanctioning any of those options. Um, I, I recommend winning. That's that's my advice to clients. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I'm going to make a statement here that uh, as it was rolling through my head, I, I probably have to parse it properly and and uh, um, make sure that I uh, somebody's going to yell at me when I say this. But don't be the kind of person who is going to get noticed and have someone make a call with a red flag complaint about you. Um, don't be threatening to shoot the neighbor kids for walking across your lawn or, or something like that. Um, I remember it's probably got to be 35 years ago now. Um, the uh, uh, local county sheriff showed up to talk to my father because some neighborhood kid swam underneath his pontoon boat and cut all of the wires for all of the lights on the pontoon boat. And the statement my dad made was, if I find that little insert expletive, I'll kill him. Well, next thing you know, there are the cops standing there saying, you know, you can't be claiming to kill 
whoever did this because word got back to the little kid and he panicked, you know, old man Mikulowski is going to come kill me. What am I going to do now? And uh, and sure enough, you know, there, there's a complaint filed and, and the cops show up. Um, so, right. you know, I, I don't want I, I'm not telling the viewers out there who are who are. I'm hoping are, are zealously defending and love their freedoms. I'm not telling you to bow down to tyranny. I'm telling you to be a polite, responsibly armed American and don't do stupid things. You know, I mean, that's the rule, how you don't get in trouble. Don't do stupid things in stupid places with stupid people. Don't do that. Um, you, you have your firearms and, and you have your firearms for the right of self-defense not to intimidate people or anything like that. So um, we got to be very careful how we talk about this stuff because, yeah, some people do get upset about it. But the truth of the matter is um, if, if you're being a decent person, you're probably not going to run into problems. Somebody may decide that they want to misuse a red flag law and file a false complaint, but hopefully the investigation will bear that out and they'll see it's a false complaint and, and something will happen to them. Um, I don't know any other way to put that. So... Um, no one uh, wins when you shoot your mouth off. No, no one wins yeah. if someone shoots their mouth off. That that's just the truth. Yeah. It it makes everything harder for your attorneys. Mm -hmm. All righty, so let's roll on into the next topic here. Um, if you are the subject of a restraining order, do you lose your gun rights? And I'm going to ask here in the state of Wisconsin, um, but then then typically, you know, across across the country, how does that work? So another one of the things under 18 USC 922 sub G is we're talking about if you are subject to uh, basically a qualifying injunction or qualifying uh, domestic injunction or something like that. Um, the issue is that the wording is actually, as always, tricky. So what do I mean by that? Well, I'm going to use Wisconsin here because uh, it's something that both Kevin and I are, are conversant in. And my suspicion is that a lot of states are probably reasonably similar to Wisconsin. So here in Wisconsin, at least the two most common types of restraining orders, we have a domestic abuse restraining order, uh, and then we have a harassment injunction. Um, those are closely related. And there's a very common misconception that's out there that, well, number one, if you do have a domestic abuse injunction, it basically will always take away your gun rights. That's true. Okay. <laughs> But the other misconception uh, is, or rather the misconception is that if you have a harassment injunction, it may or may not take away your gun rights. So here in Wisconsin, there's a little checkbox on the second page. Uh, not that I've seen this plenty of times before, but on the second page of the actual harassment injunction where the judge signs, there's a checkbox of, yes, this is meant to uh, to take away their firearm rights in essence. I've, I've made a finding that this person is a threat and blah, blah, blah. They, they modify the form from time to time, but that's the gist to it. Uh, and the common practice by attorneys and by judges and by everybody is that, well, if the box isn't checked, then your firearm rights are not gone. Wrong. That is incorrect. <laughs> uh, I have had conversations directly with the ATF field office that basically say, look, we don't care if Wisconsin says that this takes away the firearm rights or it doesn't. They're going to do their own independent analysis to determine whether or not your injunction uh, is going to take away the rights. Now, don't get me wrong. If the state of Wisconsin says, yes, this will take away your rights, that's certainly going to shoot up a flag to ATF to look into you and and how much they look into you or not, don't know. That's a case-by-case -case basis, but reasonable to say that if Wisconsin's trying to spike the ball on you or if your state's trying to spike the ball on you, odds are the ball has been spiked. However, uh, and uh, I won't go too far into the weeds on this, but here's just an example. The 
statute here in Wisconsin for the harassment injunction and, and the boilerplate language on the injunction, just the template says, look, you're not allowed to uh, sexually assault, you're not allowed to hit this person, you're not allowed to do all these different things. Great. That <laughs> Who's going to argue about that? Here's the problem. Mm -hmm. The federal language says that if you are prohibited from doing one of those things, then basically it's a qualifying pro uh, prohibition. So even the boilerplate harassment injunction language in Wisconsin will actually prohibit you federally from possessing firearms. To my knowledge, aside from a few attorneys that I've that I've taught this to uh, in continuing legal education courses where I've been a where I've been a presenter, um, nobody knows this. No one knows this. Mm -hmm. And I've had people who've gotten stung by this, by the ATF. Uh, and that's a problem because if you hire an attorney or or very often you represent yourself and you don't know this sorts of thing, uh, yeah, you're, you're going to be running into a whole bunch of problems and it may not be possible. It's very likely not going to be possible for, for someone like me to fix that on the back end. But of course, let's just back up one frame. The overall problem, we're, we're talking about two problems. One, the restraining order, we get it. Restraining order can take it away. But number two is the fact that the state legal system is not talking to the federal legal system and the federal legal system may make it the opposite determination of what your attorney and what the judge has told you point blank in the state courts and the feds will not care if the judge said you're able to possess firearms. That will hold zero water with the feds, none whatsoever. They will not care that your attorney said that. They will not care that the petitioner against you said that. They will not, won't matter. If if it checks the right boxes for, for the federal government, done. So this is all the more reason not to not to try to toot my own horn here, but if you are a, a Second Amendment person, which I assume everyone watching here today this that, that you are, um, if you are a Second Amendment person and if you have anything approaching a legal problem, there could be a very strong argument to loop in whoever it is for your state, because Lord knows there's not many of us out there, um, but to loop in from your state an attorney who knows what they're doing because the common way of practicing things, and we're, we're really going to get on this in two topics from now, um, the common way of practicing things is often totally wrong, totally wrong. And hiring somebody to fix it on the back end, even if they actually do know what they're doing, may not be possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you're, you're absolutely right about that. And and um, we will talk about um, a little bit more about domestic violence in a little bit, but um, it, you know, if there's an argument at the home and, and police show up, um, understand here in the state of Wisconsin, we have to make an arrest of the primary aggressor and then we have to ask if that 72 hour no contact hold is to be in place and we have to fill out all this paperwork we have a whole packet of stuff that we have to do when we go to a, a domestic incident like that and once that ball starts rolling it's going and and it it is a requirement that we have to follow through with that stuff folks so um absolutely and again i i will fall back to this um if you're to the point where you're so aggravated that you're going to have a, a giant screaming argument um turn around and walk out of the house and go cool down do something um because uh the the end results of some of this stuff are are uh you know the, the end results of domestic violence are bad enough 
um, the end results of the legal issues that come from them are, are, are terrible as well. And they're in place. So we don't go to these places, you know, so I don't have to ever go to another fight scene where a, a woman's eye is hanging out of her head, for God's sakes. Um, so those are the sorts of things that that these laws are designed to stop. And once once the enforcement action starts, it's it's moving, it's rolling, and we are taking the primary aggressor away, and all of this stuff starts happening. So, um, it's uh, they're, they're powerful laws in place for powerful reasons, right? And that's and and that's uh, that's going down the, the the criminal track is what Kevin's talking about there. And there's a whole mm-hmm. bunch of ways to lose it, and we're going to be talking about at least one of them. Um, but so, for instance, in Wisconsin, you know, there's there's possible 72 hour no contact order that can go into effect following a domestic violence arrest, but often prior to the issuance of any criminal charges. And then once that happens, then the state can then get bail or uh, bail uh, conditions in place to protect the the victim and so forth or any other parties involved. Um, But what we're specifically talking about or what I was specifically referencing before are civil uh, injunctions. So what are commonly known as restraining orders. So, but what Kevin brought up is excellent because that's a whole different set of problems. And again, this goes back to what, what we were saying before. This is not a one hour presentation to talk about all the different ways you can lose your firearm rights. Uh, yeah. that that's, that's a day plus and, and we could not get to everything, uh, easily. So, um, Kevin just touched on a whole other area of ways of bail conditions, uh, mandatory or or not in Wisconsin mandatory, but possible, uh, uh, you know, uh, no contact following arrest. You've been convicted of anything. And that just goes into place if the victim says, yeah, signs of signs, a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So um, let's uh, we'll shift gears quickly. Uh, something that we've talked about at length in, in other areas, uh, um, the use of um, marijuana, whether it's medical marijuana, whether it's legal recreational marijuana in your state or other drugs, and then you fill out the 4473 and you be honest on that. Um, let's talk about that. Uh, can uh, can the use of cannabis um, negatively impact your firearms rights, Tom? Uh, the federal government says yes. That's that's yeah. the that's the short answer. Uh, different states like Colorado and so forth may may uh, say no on a on a state level but the federal government has not wavered from their position that uh yes means yes to uh spin the nancy reagan around yeah absolutely um and uh, when when you're filling out that form 4473 when you're purchasing a gun from a federally licensed firearms dealer and they're going to do that background check um you know at this point um we we haven't seen a lot i haven't heard anywhere where the uh um, the state's databases where you're going into a a cannabis dispensary where they, uh, you know, take a picture of your driver's license and put you on the list. Um, we haven't seen a lot of that being used to uh, shut down gun ownership or gun purchases. But the fact that the, the information is out there in a database and could be cross-referenced and stuff, um, wow, that uh, that is a scary proposition for me. Um, when we're looking at that, well, I shouldn't say that's scary because I do not now. I've never inhaled, Tom. I'm, I, I don't, uh, you know. Uh, um, but the we, we've jumped uh, it, from it from, con- from Reagan to Clinton now. Okay. Yeah, right. It's a it's a uh, it's a confusing um, uh, opportunity um, where where people could end up losing their their right to um, own, possess, purchase a firearm. And we just don't want to see that happen to folks out there. It's, it's one of these areas of the law that really isn't, uh, um, cut and dried just yet. It's not all, all clear. So, um, and, and not to, 
not, not to bring in a whole other topic, but just, you know, Kevin's bringing up a, a fantastic point, which is the fact that there are databases that are being created out there. And if there's one thing we've learned among the many such one things that we've learned is that these databases tend to get cross-purposed and repurposed with time. Uh, so one particularly uh, notorious example are veterans who, who have uh, had counseling for potential PTSD issues, for whatever issues are going on. And all of a sudden, different states, different levels of government are repurposing those databases to take away their firearm rights, potentially years down the line. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so I'm, I am... Uh, I am skeptical that these databases will never be repurposed or cross-purposed for another reason. Mm -hmm. um, uh, here in Wisconsin, as, as both Kevin and I know, there is no legal cannabis, uh, at least this side of certain CBDs. Um, so it's we're not directly facing these issues here. Uh, we are in many other ways, but we're not at least on exactly that point. But what I have seen the government do here in Wisconsin is if somebody has had a recent uh, THC uh, conviction, even for a ticket, even for a non-criminal, uh, you know, that they they found somebody with a joint and they the cops are mm -hmm. just kind of shrug their shoulders and say, here's a here's a three hundred dollar ticket, you know, pay it, fight it, do whatever, I don't care. Um, I have seen the Department of Justice here in Wisconsin suspend concealed carry licenses for a year, and I've also seen. Uh, uh, purchases be denied uh, when you're going through background checks and so forth. So um, that's the extent of the enforcement that I've seen locally. Of course, your mileage may vary from place to place in the country. Um, and these databases that are being created, I have a strong suspicion that that is going to be used at that will be in play at some point eventually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a firm believer in that when they collect the data, they're going to use it for something. And one of the cases that I followed um, um, fairly closely, uh, and it turned out to be um, a very common practice for New Jersey State Police, um, is that uh, the state of Florida attaches your concealed carry license status to your driver's license record. So when we call in the 27, a, a check on driver's license status from Florida, it will say, yep, license is valid for, you know, D&M, you know, vehicle and, and motorcycle and you have a concealed carry permit. So um, what was happening with Florida tagged cars were driving through New Jersey. Um, New Jersey state troopers would see a Florida license plate, get behind that car, call in the license plate, and then ask for um, the driver's or, or the, the registered owner's driver's license information. If that person had a concealed carry permit, well then uh, New Jersey state police were using that as probable cause to stop and search that vehicle because you know what we we believe that the registered owner is probably the driver of this vehicle the registered owner has a concealed carry permit we're going to stop this guy for any any little infraction and then tear apart the car on the side of the highway looking for that gun and and the case that uh, that got the most attention was um, they they pulled the driver out of the vehicle took him to the back of the car and uh, the police officer um, another police officer walked to the passenger side and said to the driver's wife, where does your husband keep his gun? And she said, usually in the center console. And they just tore that car apart, never found the gun. And then, you know, have a nice day and send them on their way. So I, uh, um, I'm not a firm believer that uh, information stays where it's where it's kept when it gets in the government's hands. So um, no, information uh, wants to be free, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Just like all the rest of us. So all right, let's move on now to the 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 big topic here um domestic violence and domestic violence misdemeanors and one of the things that um i i 
I, I really need to stress, we are not defending the fact that um, people who are who engage in domestic violence should be allowed to keep their firearms uh, or, or anything like that. Um, this is a, um, I, I will never, it's, it's one of the elements in my life that, that I absolutely hate the most. I, I hate people who engage in domestic violence. And I use the word hate very sparingly. Um, I don't like going to domestic violence calls. I don't like uh, dealing with folks who are uh, involved in domestic violence and stuff like that. And yes, they should be punished very, very firmly for the things that they are doing wrong because it, it is a horrible situation. And uh, um, quite frankly, um, on, on, if you're watching this, unless you are a victim of domestic violence, I have been to more domestic violence scenes than I, I can count and more than you. And, and I'm just sick of it and sick to death of it. And if losing your gun rights stops domestic violence, then I think that's a good plan. Then it, it will encourage people to not engage in this heinous activity. So um, Tom, let's talk about crimes of domestic violence, even misdemeanors cause people to lose their gun rights. Correct. And uh, and I'm not here to, to editorialize one or the other because um, with taking zero away from what Kevin said, there's a spectrum, right? From from somebody who ties one on and just beats the crap out of, out of his or her family. Uh, and I think we can all see that as certainly one type of case. And then there's other type of cases. And, uh, you know, a, a real life example of that that I have that comes to mind was uh, I had a client who uh, got home, was working 12-hour shifts, got home, and uh, his wife was drunk as a skunk. And uh, he had, uh, got home, and she was just screaming at him. I, I don't remember about what, but was was screaming at him. And, this, and everybody agreed that this was the case. These were all mutually stipulated two facts. And um, he... Uh, sat down on, on the couch, was trying to ignore her. Uh, she threw the TV remote at his face, broke his nose. Uh, he, th they were just recently married. Uh, he picked up whatever his gaming console was, you know, Xbox, PlayStation, whatever, and threw that into the TV. And both of those were things that he owned pre-marriage. Uh, so he, in essence, broke his own stuff, although technically Wisconsin's a community property state, so it's, it belongs to both of them in the marriage. He went outside, sat on the uh, the front step, called the cops because she was not stopping. Um, we both know who got arrested there. He got arrested. Uh, yeah. He's he he's a six foot four, very athletically in shape guy, and uh, you know, hey, he he broke these things that belonged to the marriage, uh, and uh, you know, maybe that constituted a deadly threat, which is one of the the triggering criteria for a domestic violence case. And uh, he's uh, he was a former Marine, and firearms are very important to him. Second Amendment is very important to him. And all of a sudden, we're fighting this this case. It's kind of a you know, really, no prior record, nothing like that. And that's not to say that I am by any stretch uh, defending domestic violence or anything like that. But once again, this is one of those scenarios where the legal label of what may qualify as domestic violence uh, may not always rise to the level of what we think when we say domestic violence or something like that. And that's what I'm what I'm referring to when I say the spectrum, because candidly, in my book, that guy was the victim in that case. Uh, he and he's like I said, he's the one that called 911. And he was totally calm, rational. I mean, he 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 never raised his voice. The wife agreed. And but here we are. So um, 
what we're looking at here, we're talking about misdemeanors. Misdemeanor crimes of domestic violence can take away your firearm rights. Again, this is under 18 U.S.C. 922 sub G. That's that's the law that we're referencing. It's one of the sub points in there, sub seven or eight or something like that. Um, we need to be very specific when we talk about what qualifies as a misdemeanor, because again, hopefully if folks have learned something, it's that we cannot watch the labels. Wisconsin has a particular statute, 968.075, which will trigger when something under Wisconsin law becomes a domestic issue and it, it attaches an extra fine. It, there's some other stuff that comes with it. Uh, the feds don't care if Wisconsin calls something domestic or not, or probably if any other state calls it a domestic or not, they will run their own analysis to determine whether or not something is actually domestic for firearm prohibition purposes. Uh, oftentimes states like Wisconsin will call something domestic, uh, even though it may not rise to the level of federal, it, it gets extra money, it gets extra funding, there's extra fines that go along with it, there's potential enhancers and modifiers down both then as well as down, down, down river. There's extra probation that they can tack on if something is a domestic and so forth. But just bottom line is that don't assume because your state called something a domestic or your state did not call something a domestic. Either it never did in the first place or your attorney negotiated to have that particular label dropped. Does, that doesn't mean anything. It's going to use a four-letter word for that, but that doesn't mean anything to the feds. The feds will do their own analysis as to whether or not this is this is this runs as a domestic for them. We're talking about basically a two-pronged test here is the way that I usually teach this to, to judges and, and attorneys when, when I talk about this. There's the relationship test, which is basically, uh, do you have, are you married with this person? Are you cohabitating with this person? Do you have a child with this person at the time of the incident? So if the answer to those questions, and again, there's always little details that we don't have time to get to all the details here, right? But we're painting in broad strokes. If the answer to that question is no, then you're done. It's not going to wind up being a federal firearms prohibition or disqualifier. The answer is yes. We move on to the second prong. The second prong, we're looking at deadly threats or physical force. Okay. So force or deadly threats. What qualifies as uh, physical force? Me pushing. That's physical force. Thank you, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. So there does not have to be bruising. There's not have to be broken bones or does not have to be anything. It could just... If, if you nudge someone, that is physical force. And if you can basically check box one, and if you have that deadly threat or that physical force, um, then you are probably going to be done. Now, this law came into effect in 1997 under what's called the Lautenberg Amendment. It was passed in 96, as I recall, and went into, into place in 97. Uh, I will call it ex post facto which is to say that if you're convicted of something in 92 and 85 and 76 and whatever year, uh, it will go back and affect those people. Um, technically, it has not been classified as something that we call ex post facto punishment, which is the constitutional language when we talk about uh, if I walk down, if I jaywalk today, and if the government makes that a capital punishment crime tomorrow, uh, ex post facto punishment would be then hanging me because of something I did before they even made it a crime. That's ex post facto punishment. There was a United States Supreme Court case that specifically addressed whether or not this is ex post facto punishment for people who have been convicted of these offenses prior to the passage uh, of this law. And the answer that they said is no, it's not punishment, it's future regulation. And again, I'm not here to defend that one bit, but the reason why it's so important is because my firm gets more calls about people who were convicted of something that has been uh, 
potentially uh, up-classified, so to speak, to a misdemeanor crime of domestic violence, which either happened before the passage of this law in 96, 97, or was something that their, that their attorney, even the prosecutor, and even the judge said, don't worry, this will not affect your firearm rights. Uh, without repeating myself, go back to our discussion on restraining orders, because all of that directly transfers here. The feds will run their own analysis, whether or not that there are facts that constitute the, the two prongs necessary that are part of the conviction, that are part of the record that forms the conviction. Uh, and if the answer is yes, then it doesn't matter if the judge says, Mr. Smith, this will affirmatively not affect your firearm rights. I'm making a finding in the record that you are able to possess firearms and this will not affect your Second Amendment. Uh, the feds will, will, not, will not care <laughs> in a nutshell. Now, different states have a lot of different laws that are out there. Uh, and this varies widely from state to state as to what can you do uh, to rehabilitate a record, whether it's an expungement, whether or not it's a governor's pardon, whether or not there's particular statutes in place that allow you to come back to effectively vacate a judgment. In other words, take out the conviction and toss it. Different states have different things. Wisconsin, we have virtually nothing like that. We recently regained pardons, but uh, Wisconsin is, we tend as a state to be the first thing to do something or the last thing to do something. We're the 49th state to get concealed carry. Um, you know, there's examples where we tend to be in the first couple states or the last couple states to do something. We appear to be in the last couple states on the how do you rehabilitate your record, whether we're talking about it within a, a domestic violence context or a drug offense when you're 18 and now you're 45 and you want to take your kids uh, hunting or whatever it is. Um, but just understand that this is a total maze. It's a total, um, there's a lot of red tape between the feds and the state. A, a state judge, which is where 99.9999999% of the time, if you're convicted of a crime, you're going to be in state court, not federal court. Even if the state judge says you're totally fine to go, that does not mean that you're necessarily totally fine to go. You might be. Um, but this is where, again, the value of having a true Second Amendment attorney who understands that this maze and navigates these issues um, can assist your attorney in assisting that judge so that you get the proper advice on this. But I, the reason why this is this is number one in our countdown of five ways to, uh, to to lose, and again, there's way more than five, but five ways to lose your Second Amendment rights, this is by far the one that I see easily the most calls on, the most misunderstandings on, the most everything on. And uh, it's it gets very tricky very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly not something that uh, um, we can answer um, effectively um, here. Um, like you said, broad strokes, Tom, because um, every case is going to be different. Every state is going to be different. Um, this is a, this is one of those areas where, you know what, I'm uh, my advice, and and this is advice that people can you know um, use wherever they want. I'm going to say don't engage in any sort of domestic violence, not because you might lose your gun rights, because it's the right thing to do to not engage in that. So um, right. don't do that stuff. Um, but understand too that, um, it, like Tom said, depending on um, the level of argument that you just got into with a domestic partner, with somebody who lives with you, with uh, an adult child who's at your house or something like that, all sorts of crazy things can happen as a result of that. So um, it's a uh, it, it is not something to be taken lightly. It is not something um, don't if it happens, if you're involved in it, 
get an attorney and get good, competent legal counsel about what's going to happen to you and, and what can potentially happen to you as, as this goes on. So um, it's, uh, it, it's not something that is comfortable or easy to talk about. And uh, we tiptoe around it a little bit because I, I don't want people accusing us of, of supporting those who engage in domestic violence. We're not doing that. We're talking about what right. the laws are surrounding um, what will happen to Second Amendment um, uh, rights um, if you are if you are found guilty or or if you plead guilty or if you if you don't do anything at all um, on the legal side you just say yeah prosecutor do whatever you want I don't care um, uh, don't let that happen uh, you need to um, you need to understand um, just how what's a good word for this convoluted how, how you you called it a maze um, it is it's a uh, it's very difficult to find your way through that sort of stuff so um, and, and folks I will say I, I've, I've met, sorry, Kevin, I, I've, I've met one attorney, one attorney mm -hmm. in my career who knew this stuff, right? Uh, mm -hmm. At least here, here in, in Wisconsin, other than myself, one attorney. Mm -hmm. Folks, we're, we're at the largest criminal defense firm in, in our state. I have met a lot of attorneys, both prosecutor and defense attorneys. Uh, one other one, in the entire state who knew this and, and knew it with, before they came to one of my presentations on one of these topics and so forth. 99.9% uh, .9 of attorneys are not gonna know this. You're probably gonna be getting the, the wrong and bad legal advice. It doesn't mean that your attorney's evil. It doesn't mean any of that. This is just, it's so complicated and it's so tricky that uh, most people are, they don't have a chance is what it is. So you gotta be careful. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's something that we can't stress enough. Um, it, it's uh, um, have an attorney when you're dealing with this sort of stuff. Um, and honestly, uh, I'll go back to my advice. Don't engage in that sort of behavior or where you're going to risk losing those rights. Um, not because you're going to risk losing those rights, but because it's the right thing to do to be a decent person and not be involved in, right. in domestic violence and, and stuff like that. So, um, right. Tom, we are just about running out of time. I want to make sure that uh, um, we can thank you appropriately and tell people, uh, um, you know, how they can help out. Um, do you want folks uh, going over to Google and giving you a... a, a a, a five-star review um, on Google for uh, all the great work you've done with us. Way, way to steal my thunder there, Kevin. That's, that's fantastic. And I completely lost, you know, the, the direction of going because, because I, I'm, I'm not a Google review guy. That's, that's okay. Um, so folks, what would be tremendously helpful, not only to myself, but to our entire team and, and is a big part of how I can, how I can step away from my day and be here to normally field your questions. And we want to get back to fielding your questions. Uh, unfortunately, with the situation right now, it's it's technically difficult to do that. Um, but, uh, but what would be fantastic is if uh, everybody could, if you just Google Grieve Law, G-R-I-E-V-E -E Law, and without even clicking on our website. So if you've clicked on our website, you've gone too far. Uh, you just look up in the upper right-hand corner, somewhere down the, usually the right side of your screen, and you can see that there's an option for Google. You see some stars. If you just click write a review, it's going to ask you to grade us on one to five stars. This is the internet. Four out of five is a failing grade. So if you felt like you got okay content, okay tips, okay insight, whatever it might be, I would ask for a five out of five stars. I do read all these. It's not some sort of intern or something like that. So if you do write a review, I do personally read all these. I'm a little bit behind in doing it. Uh, I apologize. My wife and I, we had, we had another child several months ago. So uh, that's that's been, uh, well, 
for those parents out there, you know exactly what that's been. So that's wonderful. <laughs> I'm a little that's bit the word you're for. Glorious, sweetie. Glorious, sweetie, if you're watching. So, um, but yeah, no, it's it's been glorious, but it has led to me falling behind on some of these things. So, but I do personally go back and read all of them, all of them. So thank you, thank you, thank you from both Kevin and I as well. Thank you to all the technical uh, guys, the, the, the directors, the, the, the video team, sound, all, all that kind of stuff, uh, that allows us to still bring you this content, uh, despite the lockdowns, despite everything, um, they are, they are fantastic. You never see them, but trust me without, without those guys, we would, we would never be here. Uh, or if we did, yeah. you, you wouldn't be able to see us or hear us probably. So Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And folks, I want to remind you that this comes to you as a member benefit. Uh, you're a USCCA member. Um, this sort of stuff appears in your USCCA member dashboard over at uscca.com. You can log into it with your credentials and uh, see all sorts of great stuff in there um, as as member benefits. Uh, this is why we do it. You know, we uh, we've uh, we've got full time people working on uscca.com slash laws. Um, we pull together. We put these things together for you. Um, we are here to help make you a more responsibly armed American. And um, get in there and look around on that website and uh, and see all of the great stuff that we have offered for you and your USCCA members um, in, in the member benefits areas. Um, and I think there's even like a deal of the day in there now. You click on it and then we're offering discounts on other stuff just about every day. So get in your dashboard, look around, um, see what's going on. And uh, thank you again for being here. And we'll be back again next month. So thanks again.